Hi, hey, welcome to the Cordial Catholic Podcast, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, and those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm Kay Albert Little, an evangelical convert to Catholicism, and if there's one thing that I learned as I was becoming Catholic, it was how poorly I understood the Catholic faith. I knew Catholics, I'd heard about Catholicism, I'd read a little bit about Catholicism from non-Catholic sources, but it was when I began to actually read about the Catholic Church and hear about the Catholic Church and see the Catholic Church through Catholic lenses from Catholic sources, I began to realize that almost everything I knew about Catholicism was wrong, was backwards. This podcast is meant to fill those gaps in. We have real Catholic conversations about Catholic topics from real Catholic thinkers, from the heart of the Church. I'm hoping to fill the gap between what I thought I knew, what you might think you know, and the reality of the Catholic faith. This episode, I'm joined by Jimmy Aiken, apologist from Catholic Answers and a phenomenal speaker, writer, podcast host in his own right, and a downright amazing guy. You know, Jimmy is one of the most compassionate, kind, intelligent, and sharp thinkers in Catholic apologetics that I can think of. And this show comes to me as a bit of a dream, to be honest with you. You know, if you told me even five years ago that I'd be hosting my own Catholic podcast and talking to people like Jimmy Aiken, I would have shook my head. I would be in disbelief. I wouldn't believe you because I used to listen to Jimmy Aiken and Catholic Answers Live. I read Jimmy's books, all of them, front to back, and he was a big influence on me as I was thinking and discerning the Catholic Church. And here I am, just, say, five, six short years later, interviewing Jimmy Aiken for my podcast. It's kind of a dream come true, and I'm so grateful and so humbled by the experience. I want to thank my patrons for this opportunity especially. I have a fantastic community of patrons supporting this show with even as little as $1 a month, which helps keep the podcast going, helps pay for hosting fees and all that kind of stuff. You guys make this dream possible, and I want to thank you. I want to thank three new patrons this week. Thanks David B., thanks Kelvin L., and Susan L. Hi, Mom and Dad. Guys, your support is incredible, all of you. It makes this podcast possible. If you want to support the work as well, go to patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. And truly, even $1 a month helps keep things going. You guys are fantastic. And this conversation, all of these conversations, is an absolute blessing to me. I appreciate it so much. So here's my conversation with Catholic Answers apologist Jimmy Aiken on Church Authority. What is the relationship between the Church and the Bible? How do we understand papal infallibility? And what about doctrines and dogmas and all the so-called rules the Catholic Church has? Jimmy Aiken unpacks this with his trademark charity and insight. It's a fantastic conversation and one of my favorite intros I think I've ever done. Because as I was introducing Jimmy Aiken in the middle of my introduction, I began to cough on something and mute my mic and without missing a beat, Jimmy finished his own introduction. It was fantastic. Please listen and enjoy.
Welcome back to the Cordial Catholic Podcast. This week's guest is Jimmy Aiken. Jimmy is Senior Apologist at Catholic Answers, a regular guest on Catholic Answers Live. He's a sought-after speaker, the host, one of the co-hosts, I should say, of the fantastic podcast Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World, and the author of a number of fantastic books, including... Including works such as The Drama of Salvation, Mass Confusion, A Daily Defense, and Teaching with Authority. You know what? I should have you on as a regular guest to do your own introduction. You jumped right in there. Thank you so much. (laughs) No problem. (laughs) That'll sound great in editing. I appreciate that. Okay, let's get started. Um, This is a bit of a long-winded question to begin with, but I'm hoping you can frame our discussion a little bit, especially for our uh, non-Catholic listeners. Okay. So, as an evangelical Christian without a real good grasp of church history, I was part of a faith tradition that believed that the Bible was the sole source for knowing our faith, and each denomination, sometimes each congregation, would develop their own kind of practice of faith and beliefs from this context by mining and studying scripture. So, I assumed until I began to study Catholicism that this was the only way to read the Bible or to understand the Christian faith. But this isn't necessarily the relationship that the Catholic Church has to the Bible. Could you unpack for us that relationship that the Catholic Church and the Bible have? Yeah. um, So, I guess the first thing I'd say is, you know, I fully understand the position that you were coming from. I was an evangelical myself before I was Catholic. And in the circles that I traveled in, not only was there an emphasis on each denomination or each congregation uh, developing its own understanding of doctrine from the Bible, but actually each individual was expected to. I mean, I would regularly hear uh, pastors say things like, don't believe me, check it out for yourself from the Bible and decide what you believe. And so it was a very individualistic approach, and that was presented as, well, this is how, as Protestants, our view of sola scriptura works, that scripture is the only ultimate authority in terms of determining Uh, Christian doctrine and Christian practice, and because Scripture is the only ultimate authority, it's really up to the individual to read Scripture and interpret and apply it for himself. And the Catholic Church respects a substantial truth that is contained in that understanding. Um, God gave us intellects, as individuals. And so he expects us to use those intellects. It's one of his gifts to us. He expects us to use our intellects in the pursuit of truth, including in the understanding and application of Scripture. God wants us to read Scripture. He wants us to use our intellects to interpret it, and he uh, wants us to do our best using our intellects to apply it in our lives. So all of that is very true, and Catholics have no problem with that. Um, where Catholics do have a different understanding is is whether Scripture only is authoritative. Um, scripture alone, in Latin, sola scriptura, has been a prominent slogan in the Protestant community since, you know, its founding 500 years ago. But um, it's not the traditional Christian understanding. You wouldn't find Christians endorsing this idea prior 
to the 1500s. It's really something that got started then, and there are some reasons for that, which we can talk about if you want. But basically, um, from a Catholic, and not just a Catholic, but also, say, an Orthodox Christian point of view, and you know, other groups like Copts and Assyrians, other historic groups of Christians, have similar understandings, that the Word of God isn't just confined to Scripture. Um, originally, God's Word was given to his people orally. You know, there was a time before any line of Scripture had been written, and nevertheless, God still made himself known in the world, and he uh, called people to himself, and eventually um, the Holy Spirit led certain individuals, writing under the gift of divine inspiration, to confine some of God's Word to put some of God's word in Scripture, but really the the fundamental proclamation of God's word uh, is more than just what we find in Scripture. And if you read in Scripture, there are no passages, either in the Old Testament or the New Testament, that say all of God's word is going to be found in Scripture. You can find passages that will talk about Scripture as God's word, which it is, but you also find uh, passages that talk about the oral proclamation of the word, such as the teaching of the apostles before the New Testament was even written as being the word of God. And we find, we have a special term for um, for that oral proclamation of God's word. It's known as tradition. Um, in the Protestant community, tradition often gets a kind of a bad rap. Uh, people will point out that, you know, for example, Jesus told the Pharisees that their tradition contradicted the word of God, and so it made void the word of God. But Jesus didn't say that all tradition does that. In fact, if you read the New Testament carefully, you find multiple passages where tradition is spoken of in a positive manner. In 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul talks about to the Corinthians, and he commends them for keeping the traditions just as he delivered them to them. Uh, he tells the Thessalonians to hold fast to all of the traditions, whether they're written or not. And he indicates that uh, they, the Thessalonians, are to stay away from people who don't honor the traditions that he's given them. And so we find the New Testament endorsing the idea of tradition as long as it comes to us from Christ and the Apostles. So apostolic tradition. And we don't find any passages in the New Testament that say that's going to change. We don't find any passages that say, you know, we apostles have arrived at an agreement among ourselves that we're going to make sure all tradition gets written down in Scripture. Anything that's binding, it's going to be written in Scripture. We don't find them saying that. Neither do we find them saying things like, you know, after all of us apostles are dead, anything we said orally and didn't write down loses its authority. And so we don't find either the Christians in the New Testament era using sola scriptura. They didn't just look at the scriptures of their day, which was really the Old Testament. And we do find them embracing as authoritative the traditions that came from Christ and the apostles. And we don't uh, see that changing in the apostolic age or after the apostolic age. If you look at 2 Timothy, when Paul is getting ready to die, he tells Timothy to take what he has heard from Paul, and he doesn't say what I wrote, 
He says what you heard from me. So he's talking about his own oral preaching, and he says, uh, you've received that. Now convey that to another group of men who are trustworthy, and they'll be able to convey it to yet another group of men. And so he envisions the passing down of apostolic tradition through multiple generations, his own generation, Timothy's generation, the one that follows Timothy, and the one that follows after that. Now, coming from a Protestant perspective, you might say, well, okay, maybe there were some things that would have been authoritative for Christian faith that didn't get written down in the New Testament, but they must have died out early on, and so we don't have them today. They're not binding on us today. But that neglects the role of Jesus and the Holy Spirit in the church, because Jesus told his church, and he says it right at the end of Matthew 28 as part of the Great Commission, um, that he's going to be with us until the end of the world. Similarly, uh, he says that even after his time, the Holy Spirit is going to guide the disciples into all truth, and the Holy Spirit and Jesus certainly haven't abandoned the church. So if St. Paul understood apostolic tradition as something that needed to be passed down and uh, through multiple generations, then we have the assurance that Christ and the Holy Spirit are going to make sure that that happens, that things that were authoritative for Christian faith don't simply get lost. So uh, that's a significant part of the Catholic understanding of how we're to relate to the Bible. Also, there's the question of how we're to interpret it. Now, as I mentioned, uh, God expects us as individuals to use our intellects to uh, do our best to understand the riches of the word he's given us, but our own intellects are limited, and we can be mistaken. And even just a cursory glance at the history of the Church, or even at the New Testament itself, indicates that not everybody arrived at the correct conclusions uh, based on their reading of Scripture. Uh, It got misunderstood both in the apostolic age, and it certainly has been subsequently. And so uh, it would be reasonable to say, well, would God make some kind of provision to help us out in that situation so that the Church doesn't end up adopting views that are just flat wrong based on the misinterpretation of Scripture? Because if um, the Church accepted certain views that are false, that fundamentally contradicted the Christian faith, then the Church would cease to be Jesus' Church, and the gates of hell would prevail against it, which is something Jesus said was not going to happen. So, um, So let's look at, again, the apostolic age. Were there teachers established by God who could authoritatively tell Christians when they were misreading Scripture? And the answer, of course, is yes. Uh, The apostles could do that. They then uh, gave a share of their teaching authority to uh, individuals in local churches, like uh, bishops and so forth. And, And so there were authoritative human teachers who could clarify for the faithful what the meaning of Scripture is. And the Catholic Church, uh, like Orthodox Christians and others, understands that to be something that also continued, that if they had that need in the first century when the apostles were around, then it certainly would be needed in later centuries as well, and so it's still here. 
Christ and the Holy Spirit still guide the teaching authorities he set up in the church. We have a word for that in um, in Catholic uh, doctrine. The Latin word magister means teacher, and so the teaching authorities that Christ established in his church are known as the magisterium. And since he promised to be with his church till the end of the world, and since he promised the gates of hell would never prevail against it, Catholics understand the uh, magisterium as also having an authoritative role in helping us understand God's Word. Not in coming up with new words of God, not in getting new revelations, but helping us to understand the Word that He's already given us. Um, Again, that doesn't mean its function is to tell us everything, every single detail about what it means. Uh, We as Catholics don't have to wait for the magisterium to tell us what a verse of Scripture means before we start thinking about it, uh, we can use our God-given intellect to try to figure that out. But the magisterium is there to help us from going wrong and adopting erroneous conclusions. (laughs) You know, I didn't expect any any less than a fantastic explanation, but I think think that exceeded my expectations. Thank you for putting that uh, (laughs) so, so well. Thank you. Well, no, you're very kind. No problem. (laughs) Okay, so uh, my next question is something that I find is often very misunderstood by non-Catholics, and I think even many Catholics. And this is the idea that any communication, any document or teaching or or memo or or post-it note that comes from, in quotes, the Vatican, is coming straight from the Pope himself and is therefore infallible. Can you speak to these two misconceptions? Yeah, and frankly, I encounter them too, and they drive me nuts. Um, <laughs> if if you if you want to read uh, what I've written about this, it's actually found in my most recent book, Teaching with Authority, um, which is a book specifically devoted to how to know what the Catholic Church teaches, how to figure it out based on reading church documents and so forth. Um, People can get that, incidentally, if they go to Amazon.com. It's available both in paperback and in Kindle form. And if you're like me and you like audiobooks, you could even have your Kindle device read it to you out loud. So that's an option for you. Um, It's also available at Catholic.com, and you could also have your local uh, Catholic or Christian bookstore order it for you. In any event, uh, one of the things I definitely talk about in the book is the tendency of the press— to misrepresent uh, stuff as papal teaching. If anybody at the Vatican says anything, it gets reported as, Pope declares this, (laughs) even if the Pope had nothing to do with it. Um, Even, and secondly, uh, even when the, uh, the Holy See issues an official document, because, you know, stuff people say in interviews, that's not official. This isn't an official church teaching. It hasn't been reviewed. Uh, it's just someone's opinion when they're giving an interview to the press, let's say. But nevertheless, press interviews get represented as if the Pope has taught something, even if it wasn't the Pope being interviewed. The Even when you are looking at an official document, though, the Pope may have had nothing to do with it. Uh, the Holy See, uh, the you know church in Rome that... Uh, the actually the group of departments in Rome that assist the Pope in in uh, shepherding the worldwide church the the Holy See issues hundreds of documents and there's no way the Pope personally reviews them all so when you have to, when you look at a, even an official church document you have to say well what level of authority does it have 
and there's a wide spectrum. Some of the documents that are issued by the Holy See are unofficial briefing documents that are basically summaries of some people's opinions. They may be respected theologians, they may be someone who actually works at the Vatican, but they're not actually doctrinally binding at all. In order for something to have any doctrinal authority, it has to be approved by the Pope. And the vast majority of documents are not approved by the Pope. They're, they're helpful, but they're not doctrinally authoritative. And even when something is doctrinally authoritative, there's a whole spectrum of different levels of authority. Uh, some things the Church proposes very tentatively, others it proposes more firmly, and then rarely— and I have to emphasize, it is only rarely uh, does the Church propose something infallibly. That's actually very uncommon. It does not happen very often, and it tends to happen only in the most serious cases, when something is really a very serious misunderstanding. Uh, as long as that's not the case, the Church allows a liberty of opinion, and in some cases it actively encourages uh, a liberty of opinion. It wants the theologians in particular, to have a wide uh, breadth of uh, a wide realm of topics they can discuss, because it's their use of their intellects, which the Holy Spirit guides in a different way, that ultimately helps clarify doctrinal matters for the magisterium. Uh, when a new question comes up, you know, before the magisterium wants to weigh in on it. It wants to see some homework done on it. And it's like, okay, let's see the best arguments for and against this position. This happens particularly, it's happening a lot right now because of biomedical issues. Um, medicine has been rapidly developing over the last hundred years, and it's raised bunches of new questions that Christians in previous generations have never had to confront. You know, like, are, are, is in vitro fertilization okay? What should you do with frozen embryos? Um, it, what about artificial insemination? All of these are brand new questions in the history of the Church. And so prior generations of Christians never had the opportunity to even think about them. But now that medicine has made these things possible, uh, the Church wants theologians, in particular uh, moral theologians, in consultation with medical experts, to look at these questions and determine whether they're compatible or not with basic Christian moral principles. And then over the course of time, as the theologians develop uh, the best case for, yes, this is compatible, or no, this procedure is not compatible, then the magisterium may weigh in on it and say, yeah, you're right, it definitely is or it definitely isn't, and thus provide guidance to the faithful, but it wants to see that discussion happen first so that before it uses its authority, it gives the Holy Spirit room to shape the discussion so it can arrive at and proclaim a better, more well-phrased, more well-considered uh, approach to the issue. Oh, that's a great answer. Thank you. So I, I think the the big takeaway there for, for me is that uh, every papal interview on an airplane is definitely infallible. 
<laughs> well, um, you may want to rewind because that's kind of, and I know you're being uh, facetious because that's kind of the opposite of what I said. If you see a papal interview, it is not infallible. It's not even magisterial. <laughs> I did. I was a bit of a pain in the side of our public broadcaster up here in Canada because I did write into an article they posted, which which claimed something called the the papal edict. And I said, so what is the papal edict exactly? <laughs> of course, I they... would be curious to know. I, do, I know what a papal edict is, but I don't know what the papal edict is. Yes, there was some kind of great all-encompassing one. And needless to say, they didn't write back to my email. So I'm still wondering. <laughs> okay, so we did a great interview uh, episode last week, I should say, on Thomas Aquinas. And one uh-huh. thing that I found remarkable when I became a Catholic was this rich theological tradition that the Catholic Church traced out over these 2,000 plus years. But I had a listener write in asking why their own private interpretation, looking at scripture, wouldn't be on the same par with someone like Aquinas, and why the church would privilege one teaching over another. So could you talk to us about the role of the, uh, the, role of the theologian or theologians like Aquinas in connection with church teaching, and maybe why the writings of Aquinas would be received differently by the church than, say, my own theological musings on particular subjects? Well, let's let's uh, make since the question came from a, a Protestant listener, let's put it in Protestant terms, at least initially. Uh, so let's suppose you go to a church, a Protestant church, and let's suppose it's a little bitty church out in the country somewhere. I grew up in Arkansas. I went to lots of little bitty churches, and uh, sometimes you would have people in church who were. Uh, very knowledgeable about Scripture, and usually that would include the pastor. But you'd also have people who were not so knowledgeable about Scripture um, because, you know, they were busy, among other things, they were busy making a living and raising families, and they didn't have time to just throw themselves into the study of Scripture professionally the way uh, a pastor does. And so even though in principle an ordinary layman is on the same plane as a pastor, you know, they, they both can be competent scripture interpreters, um, and they both can be wrong. It's not always that the pastor is right and the, and the parishioner is wrong. Um, nevertheless, the pastor has had more opportunity to study scripture and the background to scripture. And so if you look at the two of them and say, on any given question, if they disagree, which one is more likely to be right? Well, it's probably the one who's had more of an opportunity to study. And so most Christians in churches would, if they have to make a choice between someone, if they, let's say, don't have time to look at a question for themselves, then they would probably be more inclined to defer to their pastor's view than to somebody who does not have a background in Scripture. It's much more likely if someone has not studied Scripture and they come along and say and read a verse for the first time and say, oh, this is what it means, it's more likely they're going to be in, in, in the wrong compared to someone who's actively studied that verse. And so um, doesn't mean they're wrong. The ordinary uh, parishioner, even if he's never studied Scripture, might have his first interpretation be dead on, accurate, and a pastor who studied it might might be wrong about it. But the odds are that the person who studied it is going to be right more of the time. And in the same way, 
The same thing applies to individuals like Thomas Aquinas. He's a theologian. He had uh, he devoted his whole life, uh, he, and since he wasn't married, um, you know, he didn't even have the distraction of raising a family. He could devote even more time to studying Scripture and related subjects, and he did. I mean, he's considered not uh, alone, but he's considered one of the uh, greatest interpreters, uh, one of the greatest theologians in the history of the Church. He's even respected in the Protestant community. And so um, even though he's not right on everything, Aquinas does get some things wrong, um, He, it, it, and even though he is on the same plane as the rest of us in terms of he's not a member of the Church's magisterium, he's just a theologian, so he does not have authority to pronounce in Christ's name on something. Uh, he can only propose uh, interpretations based on the evidence available to him. He's got a lot of evidence, and he's a really sharp guy, and he's had a lot of chance to study. And so if you had to pick, if I had to pick between someone who had never studied Scripture, and what Thomas Aquinas has to say about what a passage means, I'm going to give more deference to Thomas Aquinas simply because he's more likely to be right. There's also, from a Catholic point of view, another reason why Aquinas is deserving of respect, and that's because um, his writings have been reviewed by the Church's magisterium, by the teaching authorities that Christ established in it, and they said, you know, Aquinas isn't right on everything, but he is safe in the main. The areas where Aquinas was definitely wrong have been identified, and other than that, his reasoning is really top drawer, and so you don't have to agree with Aquinas's views, but uh, you're, you're in pretty safe hands if you do, especially if you don't have time to thrash through all of the issues yourself. Now, other theologians wouldn't be necessarily respected in the same sense that Aquinas is, right? Well, um, we have to distinguish here between what the Church says magisterially and what the historical trend is. Um, the Church today, and this has been different in the past, but the Church today holds up Aquinas as a model theologian. He, he did a really good job. But today, the Church doesn't say Aquinas is the default position. Um, it doesn't say that he's privileged over all other theologians. Uh, other individuals prefer different theologians. Uh, the, Pope Benedict XVI, who was pope until a few years ago, is known and has openly talked about how he prefers St. Augustine as a theologian over Thomas Aquinas. So you will sometimes find people who are real big fans of Thomas Aquinas or Thomists who will kind of say, oh yeah, Thomas Aquinas is the cat's pajamas uh, and kind of hint that you really, really, really need to defer to him. But that's not church teaching. Um, the, church, the church holds up Aquinas as a good theologian and a great theologian. He's even what's known as a doctor of the church or a teacher of the church. Doctor is another Latin word for teacher. Um, but uh, if you prefer somebody else, like St. Augustine, for example, that's okay with the church too. So I guess the, I mean, the thing that I love and that I, I fell in love with becoming a Catholic is just this rich, rich tradition of, of theologians, and not that they all would be received as having spoken the definitive magisterial word of the church, but having 
muse on these topics and and then there are places where the church says yes this is definitely a great a great thing they've said here versus um these theologians being the ones to to make to make this theology the church more is affirming things that they have discussed does that make sense well we should probably distinguish between a couple of things here at least and these terms are um, and that's actually a very Thomistic thing to do. Let's make a distinction here. Um, <laughs> the terms theology and doctrine have different meanings, in, uh, at least in the Catholic community. They're often used interchangeably, but they actually have different meanings. Theology is the attempt to study God more deeply based on his revelation. Doctrine or teaching, doctrina is the Latin word for teaching, doctrine is something the Church authoritatively teaches. And so theology, because it's just the attempt to understand God based on his revelation, that's actually largely the realm of opinion. Uh, The Church may have some theological ideas that originally are, you know, freely discussed uh, proposals that may or may not be correct, and then the magisterium may later weigh in on those and elevate one item of theology so that now it's an item of doctrine. But um, actually, doctrine and theology are two separate things, although they are related to each other. And so what you find from theologians is theological opinion. What you find in church documents, at least the authoritative ones, is church doctrine. Oh, that's a great clarification. And this actually leads to my next question, which is one of the criticisms that you often hear of the Catholic Church as being overly dogmatic, in, in quotes. That there, there are too many rules over and above what may have been a simple message of Jesus. Now, there's a lot of kind of polemical talk in there, but could you unpack for us what a dogma is and how we're to understand the place of dogma and doctrine and and simple just religious practice in relation to Scripture and the Church? Okay, I may need you to—there's kind of a lot there, so I may need you to come back and remind me of pieces of it that I may forget in the course of answering this. Um, Let's start with the too many rules thing. This is a charge that is leveled against Catholics, and you know what? It's also leveled against our Protestant friends. Uh, You will have people say, oh, Protestants have too many rules. And um, and they shouldn't have all those rules. And um, whenever I hear that kind of charge, both when I was a Protestant and now that I'm Catholic, is, well, what – number one, how many rules is too many? How do you know when you have just enough or too few? And this is really a very subjective judgment. Um, it, it People – if you ask them, well, how would you know what the right number of rules is – they're almost never going to have a good answer for you. And really, they're frequently just repeating a meme against a group they don't like. If they don't like Protestants, they'll say Protestants don't have uh, – Protestants have too many rules. If they don't like Catholics, they'll say Catholics have too many rules. And oftentimes – and I, I really hate to psychologize anybody, um, but I, in this case, I think it needs to be considered why do they – say things like this. Oftentimes, it's not the number of rules they're concerned about. It's particular ones that they don't like. And instead of saying, I don't like this rule, they'll say, you have too many rules. And instead of uh, 
instead of identifying a specific rule and saying, you know, I disagree with this. I think it's a bad idea. Let's talk about that. Instead of addressing it in a straightforward way, they start tarring the other group, whether Protestants or Catholics, as being overly judgmental and having too many rules, when the issue isn't really the number of rules. The issue is really some particular rule or some some small set of rules that they don't like. And frankly, frequently, a lot of those deal with moral conduct. Uh, when you hear people say Protestants have too many rules, it's often because among the rules that Protestants rightly accept are things like don't sleep around outside of marriage. And a lot of people want to have sex outside of marriage. And so rather than just saying, you know, I want to have sex out of marriage, they'll say you have too many rules. And it's a dodge for the true fact, which is they just don't want have to follow Christian sexual morality. And something similar happens uh, when people uh, say the same thing about the Catholic Church. Oftentimes when they say, oh, the Catholic Church has too many rules, the rules they're thinking about are things like don't have sex outside of marriage or don't abuse drugs or things like that, matters that are actually just basic moral requirements. Well, anyone should be basically moral. They should they should adhere to basic moral principles, whether they're Catholic or Protestant or anything else. Every human being ought to, and we don't because we have original sin, but every human being ought to be a moral person and honor the law that God wrote in our hearts, whether we're Jew or Gentile or whatever else we may be. And so if it's the moral rules that are the real source of the concern, we should just take those off the table and say, okay, look, we should all be able to agree that we all want to be moral. And we could debate and discuss, is a particular moral requirement actually uh, something that is uh, reasonable or not? You know, we could we could have a discussion about, okay, is premarital sex a bad idea or is adultery a bad idea? Let's talk about that. But let's not go around accusing each other of having too many rules when the issue is really something else. So let's consider non-moral rules. How many non-moral rules actually impact the lives of Catholics on a regular basis? Well, you got to go to church on Sunday. But people in the Protestant community say that. Now, someone in the Protestant community might say, well, there can be exceptions. On some Sundays, um, you know, you might have something else that is really urgent you need to do, and so you can't go to church. And Catholics would say, yeah, absolutely. There can be situations, like if somebody's sick. You don't want them going to church and making themselves miserable and infecting other people. You can stay home when you're sick. So the go to church thing isn't really a um, isn't really a rule that separates Protestants and Catholics. Okay, what's another rule that impacts the lives of Catholics? Well, you want to get baptized. Okay, well, if you're a Protestant, you want to get baptized too. Jesus said to get baptized. Um, what's another one? Well, in Catholic circles. We fast two days a year, Ash Wednesday and Good Friday, and it's a really minimal fast. It amounts to basically basically skipping a meal. It's not much more than that. And so, um, well, is fasting something that's inconsistent with what Jesus said? No. In fact, he said, when you fast, 
do it in a way that's between you and God. Don't make a big public show of how much you're suffering because you're fasting. So fasting is not contrary to Christian principles, and Catholics only have to do it twice a year, and only uh, it's a little more than just skipping a meal. You know, that's not burdensome. Uh, There are a few other rules, too, but when you really look at it, the number of actual rules that Catholics have is something that is very minimal. It is not burdensome at all in their lives beyond the struggle we all have as Christians to to live in a moral fashion and glorify God. Well, I think you've explained that very well. Now, how, how about the idea of—because I think you've laid that charge down pretty well, but there are words like dogma and doctrine, yeah. and there are so many different— I mean, if you are okay. a non-Catholic, sometimes looking at Catholicism from the outside, there's all these, there's rosaries and divine mercy chaplets, and there's these, all these well, different okay. things, these, these religious okay. practices. So let's, let's talk about, so let's talk first about the realm of doctrine and then about the realm of practice. Um, the, so we already mentioned the distinction between theology, which is really a matter of opinion, and doctrine, which is a matter of authoritative teaching. Well, within the realm of doctrine, as I mentioned, there's a spectrum of authority. Uh, some doctrines are proposed very tentatively. Others are proposed more authoritatively. And the highest level of authority is infallibility, where the church has said, okay, this is for real. There is no doubt about this at all. And uh, the church believes that when um, when when the church does use its doctrinal authority that was given to it by Christ to bind the conscience of believers in that absolute way, that God will prevent the church from saying something wrong in those instances. So the highest level of doctrinal authority is infallibility. It's a guarantee that this is true. Within the realm of infallible doctrines is a smaller set of doctrines that are known as dogmas. The word dogma, it comes from a Greek term. It it originally meant a decree. Um, So like when uh, Luke talks about how a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole world should be enrolled, he actually uses the word dogma. And that's what it meant in his day. Eventually, though, the term dogma came to uh, refer – basically became a synonym with doctrine. It just meant teaching. But now it's used – and for the last few centuries in Catholic circles, it's been used as a technical term for a very small set of infallible doctrines. And specifically, a dogma is not just something the church has said – infallibly to be true. It's something the church has infallibly said to be part of divine revelation. Okay? So, um, unless you have that added element in an infallible teaching that not just is this true, but this is something God himself has revealed, it's not a dogma. So, Uh, Going kind of from the broadest circle, you've got theological opinion, which is not authoritative. Then you have the circle of of, uh, doctrine, which has one or another degree of authority. Then you have the circle of infallible doctrines, which have the highest degree of authority. And then within that, you have the smallest circle, the dogmas, which are not only infallible, but have been infallibly said to be part of God's revelation itself. 
So that's a sketch. And I, I cover all this in more detail in my book, Teaching with Authority. So if people are interested, they can check that out for a more technical explanation. And as I mentioned, even the number of um, infallible doctrines is low. And the number of dogmas, therefore, is even lower because they're a subset of infallible doctrines. Um, so that kind of sketches the sphere of doctrine. We can then look over at the sphere of practice. We already talked about rules that uh, the Church has and how they're actually really not burdensome. Um, but there are these other practices like rosaries, divine mercy chaplets, and these are devotional practices. They are not obligatory. If you're a Catholic, you don't have to pray the rosary. In fact, in East, many Eastern Catholic churches that are fully Catholic, they're in union with the Pope, the rosary is not one of their common practices. They have other uh, practices that they do that, that aren't used in the West. Like, for example, there's a famous uh, hymn known as the Achathist Hymn, and that's common in some Eastern churches. It kind of, It's kind of parallel to the rosary, but it's their way of uh, showing devotion. It's not the common Western way of doing it. Similarly, you mentioned the Divine Mercy Chaplet. That's a very recent devotion that only arose in the 20th century. It's not something the Church mandates. It's up to the individual. Does God speak to their heart uh, devotionally when they do this or not? That's a call for you as an individual. So all of these private devotions are purely um, voluntary, and they're they're equivalent to uh, private devotions you find in the Protestant world. You know, people will have daily devotional study guides that they read, or they'll uh, they'll read through devotional books that uh, from authors they find very moving spiritually. They also will say prayers. They also will sing Christian songs. When you're singing a Christian song, whether whether it's in church or um, whether you're listening to a Christian radio station and a group you come on or an artist you come on likes or you buy their MP3s and you sing along with them just in your home, that's a devotional exercise. It's a voluntary one. You don't have to be doing that. But you can if you find it helps you feel closer to God and contemplate him more and incorporate him into your life. And it's the same thing with Catholic devotional practices. That's wonderfully said. Thank you. Okay. So I have, I think, one more question here for you. Now, uh -huh. as a non-Catholic Christian, I'd say that one of the biggest things that kept me from learning more about Catholicism was how poorly it was represented to me by Catholics that I knew. And mm -hmm. It seems that even amongst Catholics, there's a lot of confusion um, about what the church teaches sometimes. Now, I think your book is a fantastic resource um, for understanding which kind of teachings fit where. Um, but is there a good rule of thumb here um, that non-Catholic Christians or even Catholics themselves could use to differentiate opinion from actual church teaching? I mean, in other words... Yeah. What's the best way for non-Catholics and Catholics to find out what the Church actually teaches versus just opinions being offered? Well, in the book, I go through—I have a kind of procedure, a multi-step procedure of here's how to track down is something Church teaching or not. Um, but, uh, you know— you want to get the book if you want the full procedure because it it goes it's more than I can explain right now. But just a kind of thumbnail, a good rule of thumb. If you want to know does the church teach something, look it up in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. If it's there, the church uh, and this isn't 
100% rule because actually the catechism does contain statements that are not doctrinal. But and again, you want to read my book to find out how to identify those. But um, as a rule of thumb, if you find something in the catechism, then it's something the church teaches with some level of authority. It may be very tentative. It may be all the way up to infallible. Unfortunately, the catechism is not color coded to tell you the level of authority. So, again, you need to check out my book. But um, but basically, if it's in the catechism, it's doctrine. It should be assumed to be doctrine on some level. If it's not in the catechism, I mean, it might be doctrine, but the the important ones are all mentioned in the catechism. So if it is, it's not an important one. Let's give a practical example of that. Um, a lot of people, and this isn't just Catholics, this is Protestants too, a lot of people believe that only human souls survive death, and animals, therefore, and plants don't have an afterlife, that they just cease to exist. Um, okay, well, that's a common theological opinion. Historically, that's the most common theological opinion. But if you look it up in the catechism, you're not going to find that. You will find the catechism saying our souls survive death, human souls do, but the catechism doesn't address animals or plants one way or another, and neither do any other authoritative magisterial documents. So the idea that animals don't have an afterlife, that's a matter of theological opinion, and it's a very respected and historically popular theological opinion, but it's not Catholic teaching. So if you thought the evidence is otherwise, that uh, God has reason to give animals an afterlife, and that's what you think is the case, that's okay with the Catholic Church. That's within the realm of legitimate opinion. <laughs> so you're telling me that the ficus that I killed in university might be uh, in, in the afterlife somewhere? <laughs> <laughs> it might be, but ficuses don't blame anybody for anything that happens to them, so the ficus won't blame you. Oh, that's that is a weight off my chest. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I appreciate that. You know, that's a fantastic answer to be uh, to be honest, um, and and not to be so coy because I. And it's remarkable to hear that. It's such a seemingly simple answer because I know I spent and I've known I, I know a lot of evangelicals who have come into the church in similar situations who spend so much time looking, uh, exploring Catholicism from non-Catholic sources. Uh, it takes often a while for us to get around to Catholic sources when here is a fantastic resource, the Catechism, to seemingly answer all these questions. We should just skip maybe some of those non-Catholic sources and go right to the the source, right? Yeah. Now, even then, you have to be careful, especially if you're coming from a non-Catholic perspective, because every community uses language differently. And if you're not familiar with how Catholics use given words, um, you may trip over them, like dogma, for example. Um, you know, we covered earlier in Catholic theology and Catholic doctrine, that has a very specific technical meaning. But it would be easy for someone coming from a non-Catholic background to uh, read the catechism and say, oh, well, it says this here in the catechism, it must be a dogma, when actually it's probably not a dogma. The number of dogmas is pretty small, uh, comparatively speaking, to you know overall church teaching. So um, it, it is important to look it up in the catechism, but then as kind of a second step, you need to make sure you're understanding the catechism correctly. And, you know, the only way to kind of internalize 
the way Catholics use language is to do a lot of reading of Catholic sources and to ask questions of competent, knowledgeable Catholics, you know, theologians and so forth. How do you guys use this term? Um, a kind of backup way of doing that is called Catholic Answers Live. Uh, every week we have several open forums. I'm on at least one of them a week. And you can always call me and say, hey, I was reading this passage in the catechism and I think I know what it means, but can you help me clarify it? And I'm happy to help out. <laughs> and if you can't get through, just start a podcast and get a bunch of episodes, <laughs> and eventually maybe you can have Jimmy Aiken on as your guest. <laughs> I'm happy to be on podcasts. Also, you can, if you don't want to go to all that trouble, you could just call at the top of the hour when I'm on before the phone lines fill up. <laughs> you know, I do, I want to say to you, thank you, because you and Catholic Answers Live was, f- for you know, formative for me and so many non-Catholic Christians in becoming Catholic. And a lot lot of us owe a lot of thanks to to Jimmy Aiken over the years. Well, thank you. It's uh, it's my honor, and it's also the honor of all of the other Catholic Answers apologists to be able to be of service. Um, the glory goes to God. He's the one who is responsible uh, through the action of the Holy Spirit in the world for all of the spread of his word, and I'm honored just to be able to play a teeny little part in it. <laughs> Amen. Okay, so I completely tripped over your introduction, and you graciously filled in the blanks there at the end. I had something in my throat. It's gone oh. now, though, so why don't okay. you tell us where people can find out more about Jimmy Aiken? Well, um, so we've mentioned Catholic Answers. That's the ministry I work for. Our uh, our website is catholic.com. We got that because we thought ahead. Um <laughs> Uh, also, if you want to learn more about me in particular, you can go to my personal website, jimmyaken.com. It is there for you free of charge. The only thing is you have to spell my name correctly. Uh, Jimmy is J-I-M-M-Y. Aiken is just four letters, A-K-I and N, as in Nancy. So uh, no extra T's, S's, or E's, or anything like that, just A-K-I-N. So you can go to jimmyakin.com. Hope you'll check out my uh, podcast that you mentioned. I'm actually on several, but uh, the most popular of them is Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. Just type that in uh, to the internet machine, and it'll come up. And on uh, Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, every week, I look at some mystery. It could be a natural mystery, like who killed John F. Kennedy. It could be a supernatural mystery, like do ghosts exist? And I look at these mysteries both from the perspectives of faith and reason. I try to be open-minded, but also a critical thinker, so I don't quickly uh, and easily either embrace or condemn a position. I try to lay out the evidence. I try actually try to think like a lawyer when I'm uh, preparing these episodes. And so, okay, let's let's marshal the evidence for and against and take a look at this. And so, check out Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. Also, uh, check out. Um, my book, if you're interested, I have a bunch of them. If you're coming from a Protestant background, a book that might be particularly helpful for you is one called The Drama of Salvation, and it is um, a discussion of the Catholic understanding of salvation. That's something that was a big issue for me when I was uh, coming into the Catholic Church, and I found out some surprising, very surprising to me things about what the Church does and doesn't say about the doctrine of justification and about the phrase faith alone. So um, there's some real surprises there. If you've never heard 
uh, Catholics articulate all of that, or even if you have. So you may want to check out The Drama of Salvation. Um, if you're interested in apologetics, check out my book, A Daily Defense. It's uh, one of those page-a-day books. So each page uh, represents a day f- going through the year. Uh, you can start on any day you want, but each one is a different challenge. Some of them are challenges to the Christian faith in general. And um, actually about half of them, or a third to a half of them, are things where here's how you can object, answer an objection to the Christian faith. Others are objections to the Catholic faith. So if you're wondering, well, I object to the Catholic faith. I wonder how they would answer my objection. Odds are it's uh, it's in uh, a daily defense. So you may want to check that out. Or if you're specifically interested in our topic today of how to know what the church teaches, how to parse church documents and really figure out what they are and are not saying, get my book, Teaching with Authority. All of those are available at Amazon.com and at Catholic.com. They're available both in Kindle, in paperback and in Kindle. And as I said before, if you're like me and you like audiobooks, you can have your Kindle device read them to you out loud. That is fantastic. And I can vouch for all things Jimmy Aiken. Hey, I even followed your diet regime and lost 40 pounds a few years ago. So Hey, congratulations. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you so much for being on this episode. This is just a wonderful conversation. I feel so grateful, so blessed to be able to have this with you. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, you're much too kind. The pleasure is all mine. God bless. You too, and all your listeners. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Cordial Catholic Podcast. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jimmy Aiken. Make sure you visit his website, jimmyaiken.com. It's also linked to in our show notes if you can't spell Aiken, although it is just A-K-I-N. It's really easy. Our website is thecordialcatholic.com, where you can find show notes, past episodes, my blog, and all kinds of other resources having to do with this show. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you use. And if you're an Apple Podcasts user, please rate and review this podcast if you can. Apple is making ratings and reviews even more important in its discovery algorithm. That means that shows with ratings and reviews will get pushed out to new listeners and recommended more often. Your ratings and reviews will help to build this podcast audience and improve the content, quality, and feedback we get on this podcast. That would be incredible. I'm on Facebook at The Cordial Catholic and send your feedback to cordialcatholic at gmail.com. This podcast is supported by our patrons at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic where even $1 a month helps to keep the lights on, the podcast fees paid, and the hosting taken care of. Thank you so much to everybody already supporting this podcast and thank you for your prayers and your fasting as well. And thank you for listening. I love this audience, I love this opportunity, and I am so grateful to host this podcast every single week. Thank you so much for listening. I'll talk to you next week, and God bless. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordialcathy. 
A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.